Greetings, reader fans, and welcome to Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review and writing review show, the space pilot's best friend when waiting for clearance from the space station. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you a special where we're going to be discussing a particular topic that I think may interest some of you, which is about writing in computer games. Joining me tonight is Elite Dangerous official author and games writer, Darren Gray. Hi, Darren. Hello, Alan. Thank you very much for having me on. I, I thought this evening that considering we're going to go and look at a few things about writing in games, then uh, it would be an opportunity for you and I to, to chat about that. It would also be an opportunity to catch up with you and visit on where you've got to with the things that you're up to at the moment with your current projects. Yeah, certainly. Okay, and with LaveCon coming up, Darren and myself are both attending, and we've got uh, a few bits and pieces that we're going to talk through at LaveCon, which hopefully we can have a bit of a discussion tonight and introduce some of those ideas. But firstly, we should turn to the latest news. So we've had the Arthur C. Clarke Award shortlist for 2017. Now, this is particularly important if you're not aware of the Arthur C. Clarke Award. It's an award given every year to novelists in science fiction. This is the 100th year since Arthur C. Clarke's birth, so particularly a poignant award this year. Uh, previous winners have been uh, notables like Adrian Tchaikovsky, Pat Cadogan, China Mieville, many, many prestigious writers in science fiction. This year, our shortlist is A Close and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers, Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, After Atlas by Emma Newman, Occupy Me by Tricia Sullivan, Central Station by Levi Tedder, and Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Now, I don't know, Darren, have you read any of these? I have not, no. <laughs> I've put you on the spot, sorry. So, I'm aware of some of them. So, just to give the audience a little bit of an idea here. So, After Atlas is the sequel, or kind of a, it's, it's kind of a standalone sequel to Emma Newman's Planetfall. Now, this is a book I, I read a couple of years ago. Very, very good and well worth reading. This is published by Rock, and uh, it's it's quite a, a close, gritty science fiction. Certainly, Planetfall was was about a colony who were particularly isolated and trying to deal with uh, with the fact that they'd lost contact with Earth. Nine Fox Gambit. I've got Nine Fox Gambit. I've started Nine Fox Gambit. I'm struggling with Nine Fox Gambit. It's a particularly at the beginning. It's a particularly alien culture so I, I would say a little bit reminiscent of E&M Banks. Now I didn't struggle so much with E&M Banks but uh, this is a little bit more alien. I'm sure you know other people have raved about it so I'm sure it's me. Uh, and Central Station by uh, by Levy. I've read other books by Levy. I again struggled with Central Station so of the books that, that I know I would probably be earing towards After Atlas to be honest. That said, uh, Becky Chambers, A Close and Common Orbit, has been raved about to me uh, as well. So, um, And obviously not to forget uh, Colson Whitehead and Trisha Sullivan. So do go take a look. The awards shortlist you can find on clarkaward.com. It's particularly interesting for me in that whoever wins this award, I think, will be in an anthology with me because New Compress have announced that they're publishing a short story anthology of short stories specially commissioned 
to celebrate Arthur C. Clarke's 100th anniversary. And um, I won a prize to be in there with all the Clarke Award winners, which should be really good fun. So my story dancers should be uh, should be going in with uh, other stories inspired by Arthur C. Clarke. And that'll be due out in December this year. The Clark Awards are announced in August. Now, turning to our topic for tonight. So, writing in computer games. Now, the detail of this is something that Darren has an awful lot of experience of because you've been writing in computer games for a number of years, haven't you, Darren? Yes, that's right. And I've also been making my own computer games, which often involve some narrative component. So with regards to that, um, this was something that you were deeply involved in. I remember prior to us doing stuff with Elite Dangerous and uh, and working on any of the subsequent projects there, you were already working on indie games and, uh, and other stuff related to it. But in terms of writing... The programming side is, you know, is obviously is, is one bit. I'm I'm sure that gives you a particular insight, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, what I find very interesting is that mm. obviously writing is one thing, but writing for games is a little bit like writing for a film script. The actual written word isn't everything. You have to consider the context of what the player is actually doing in the game. And going beyond just think there's visual elements there which you know take the place of the writing in certain respects and there might be audio elements and so on as well but even the, the mechanics of what the player is physically doing affect the frame of the writing quite considerably so you're thinking then in terms of particularly in terms of visualization not just visualization i suppose but in okay. terms of communicating a narrative if you've killed an enemy through the game mechanics through your actual actions that is part of the story not just you know seeing something happen on the screen, but you know you internalize the actions of what you're doing, and then the writing has to kind of fit around that action. And in particular, you know we obviously have this this lesson in writing: show don't tell. Hmm. In gaming, it's even it goes further: play don't show. Yeah. And get the player actually engaged in what you're doing instead of showing them this pre-rendered cutscene. So writing has to fit around this very carefully. Yeah, I, I think there's probably a number of levels here, isn't there? Because if we're to start with, if we're thinking about how the writing is attempting to communicate information alongside other ways in which the artifact is speaking to the user, audience, player, reader, I, I always find that, you know, which word to go with, because they're obviously, we're changing roles continuously if the writing is working alongside other ways in which we're addressing uh, the individual, then it's got to complement. Would, would you say that's your experience? Yeah, definitely. And not interfere with it. If the writing gets in the way of the gameplay, it will be mm. treated negatively rather than something positive. So a typical thing in a lot of games, for instance, is to have writing and lore pieces that you find in the game. Mm. And they're treated as a reward. As in, you you solve a puzzle and you get a lore piece, yeah, and that enhances the value because the the people are going through this this puzzle or challenge yeah. or whatever else purely to get that piece of content. So compare that instead with a, a character is engaging with a game and he's really enjoying it, and suddenly a screen full of text appears. Yeah, it's disrupting their flow and it's actually uh, it's engaging very negatively with them. So they actually they think worse of the story because it's actually getting in the way of what they want to be doing. So part of that is just where to actually exposit that piece of writing to the player. You know, at, at what time do you present it to them in a way in which they will accept in, in the right frame? Yeah, I guess that's a little bit about, as you say, about that kind of uh, incorporation structure. 
certainly yeah, my experience of Chaos Reborn was that much as I'd done the writing to try and complement everything that was there, actually to find a way to incorporate it was quite tricky because, you know, I don't think Snapshot had quite visualized what they had. You know, they, they hadn't realized what they could do with what they, they had. So so that was that was a little bit tricky in terms of its incorporation. And it did end up that some of the content ended up as 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 you say, a wall of text, you know, in one section, which of course is a section that people just go past. Whereas at the moment writing with uh, with Phoenix Point in mind, it is much more incorporated. You know, we are thinking because we're there at the genesis of it. We are thinking quite clearly about how the writing is incorporated in different ways, whether it's stories, whether it's character backgrounds, whether it's snippets of information and so on. It's, you know, it's quite, quite useful in that regard. So what what examples, certainly from the ones that you've worked on, what examples would you say are good examples of how writing has been well incorporated in games? Well, in Tales of Magiel, for instance, one of the pieces I did was I wrote this whole legend to this ancient race that was mm. in the world you can't you find artifacts relating to them throughout the game and in terms of game mechanics they all are special in some way they have some specific gravitas to them that makes them separate from the other items you find in the game so there's already this feeling of a specialty around that just on the game mechanics side so I wanted to have this very special story around them as well and i wrote out like a big wall of text but I knew I was never going to give out that wall of text. I was just, here's the story to be communicated. So I worked with the artist on the game in designing a number of murals that you come across in some ancient ruins. And these, if read, tell you the story. And the, the pictures represent the, the bits of text, I was, the, you know, the story I had designed and, and written for. And, and so you know, the artist had these pieces to, to write pieces for. And then I, I wrote inscriptions for each artwork, like a, a piece, a sentence that would be written underneath each artwork, and it would be a single line underneath each. And it wouldn't say what was in the artwork. It would say some message, a kind of religious message relating to the image. But I wrote it in a invented language for the game. So the player will find these murals, and they will see these pictures, and they will know it's relating to this ancient special race. But they'll see this garbled text essentially. How did you go about inventing the language? It's mostly nonsense, but like, <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of structure in there. Sure. Um, I did make sure kind of certain words, I even came up with a little verb structure for it. So it's, it's a semi-constructed language. There's a certain way it should sound and look, you know? Okay. So making sure that's consistent and those sorts of things, yeah. Was it spoken at all, or was it just, no. it's just represented as it's, as it's seen? Yeah, okay. No, it's particularly interesting because I did three different pictorial languages for a live event game, and one of them I actually wrote in a, in a meeting. <laughs> I sat in, a, sat in a particularly boring committee meeting next to a drama lecturer, and he sat watching what I was doing with a biro and, and writing out this pictorial... <laughs> this <laughs> pictorial language and it ended up and actually um what was particularly useful is when we, we eventually applied it and it's been used in a couple of things when we eventually applied it i was able to transform it into a font and so by transforming it into a font i can just write stuff in it you know which is is great and you have to be a bit careful with i don't know did you did you go for and i 
I don't want to spoil this here because obviously if people aren't familiar with it, they go off and find it and then they find a quick way to translate it. But you were saying that you had some nonsense in there because the first thing I thought about was brute force translation. Was that something that came into your mind in terms of, of how it would be, you know, sort of deciphered? No, because definitely you can't do that, basically. It's not constructed enough to be able to do that. But there's clear structure to it if, yeah. if you get the translation and you compare it to the original. Even if you're reading yeah. the untranslated text, you will recognize certain words that are actually yeah. Yeah. linking with game elements. Yeah, okay. Uh, so there, there was, you know, it starts off, fa makel tabak, which means, but a makel came. Um, you. And his might surpassed all else. And then it goes on and uh, describes little things. like. But you'd see certain keywords like a Macbell. Yeah. That comes up as a story element about yeah. a Macbell in the game. Well, that's that's great. And and actually what you're doing, by having the pronunciation, gives it a certain life as well. But also by not completely working it through, it remains a fragment. And so it projects depth. So it suggests that, mm. that it's part of a larger whole. I mean, what I did is I did... First of all, I did a letter replacement system, and then I did a biliteral system. So you have specific symbols for th and specific symbols for sh. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, it obscures brute force translation. And then I had specific shorting symbols for verbs and for nouns. And so again, that obscures brute force translation. So you could write out the same sentence in three different variations using three different columns of of stuff once you put it in and put it together it gave people something and you were hoping that you could almost certainly i was hoping that you could explore the language in in three different ways so you could explore it to start with you explore it on the level of just brute force translation and then you would gradually acquire more and more letters and more and more you know more and more symbols and and learn a bit more about it yeah, but no, I, I never thought about pronunciation. I mean, that those sound beautiful. I'm kind of quite jealous. That sounds really awesome. When Tolkien did his language creation, so yeah. much of what he did was into the sonorous rhythm of the thing. So I wanted that. So it's written in just Roman characters. So I wanted it to be a readable thing, as in you could read it out and it doesn't sound... It's not just a bunch of X's, like you see in a lot of yeah. um, alien sci-fi languages. Yeah. But the idea is you actually later in the game much later in the game, you will find a key item in the game that lets you translate this text. But if you're the player and you find this item, you need to, first of all, put two and two together that this lets you translate the text. It's in the item description, but you may not realize it if you've forgotten about these murals. But you can go back then, and you have to make the effort to go back and to have a look at these. So the player has to be immediately motivated to engage with these story elements. They've had hints from early on about what these story elements are. They've had lots of context for these pieces throughout the game through different locations they visit. And then finally, you know, much later on when they, they get this key item, they're able to go back and they see the proper tale, the proper myth that goes in behind the creation of the world. And it's a very special tale. You get a lot of lore pieces throughout the game which are much more contemporary to the game world. This is something really ancient and special feeling for a player that wants to feel like this is a good reward for, for the effort they put in. Yeah, and I, I guess it's a layer, isn't it? You know, in that that's a, a way to, you know, people play games for different reasons, and that's one particular layer that, that is a, a layer of reward. So, yeah, no, definitely interesting. And I, the thing I find fascinating is 
where you do something small, you can imply it's much larger and that there's actually more to it than the small amount of stuff that you've done. I always find that, you know, fragments always imply that there was more there before there was a fragment and ways in which you can kind of connect things to things that already exist imply that something is bigger in terms of what's there. So yeah, collecting up parts of the old lore to a reward, even then, you know, when the reward and the, the story is told, finding ways to sort of suggest that there is more, I think is always fascinating. So what other advice would you give to someone who's looking to start writing in games? Well, if you're looking to start, uh, I would say it's quite easy to make your own game. And you could, you know, there's lots of different types of games you can do. RPGs in particular, you know, role-playing games, tend mm-hmm. to support the idea of having a lot of text in there. RPG players often play them for a story-dominated game, and you get games like To the Moon, which are almost entirely story. You're just you're reading text and seeing characters interact. I would say always make sure that you're never giving a player more than two or three lines at once, unless they specifically yeah. choose to go out of their way to get more yeah. than two or three lines at once. Yeah. If you're trying to exposit a large amount of lore, then have it as some sort of side content that the player has to access separately. Yeah. And make sure that in the game that you can access that through some separate menu. You, know, you go into a, a separate menu and choose view lore pieces and you find all the pieces yeah. that you've uncovered. Just to, to give people the right structure to yeah. how they access that content. I think, I mean, that, that sort of chimes in with certainly some of the stuff that Fail Better Games are doing with um, Fallen London. And I know that where they offer writing opportunities, they're asking people for very specific word limits for sections because they know that they have to fit everything on a mobile phone. So they've got to, you know, each section has to work, as you say, in very small sort of bits. This is why Grant's Abracadrabble show is actually really, really useful because if you get used to the idea of writing to a very constrained word limit, it makes you write in a slightly different way. You start to compose as opposed to just sort of write, you know, and being too yeah. wordy is certainly something that the discipline of script writing stops you from being too wordy, makes you do more with less. And I guess this is the same. Absolutely. Less is more. And going back to what you said about giving the illusion of depth. Yeah. Yeah. Less words can really have more of an impact with yeah. the player's imagination. In particular, I've found so often players just beyond two or three sentences players yeah. will stop reading. Their eyes skim over. Whilst you're engaged in play, you are not really in the mood to read a long piece of text. And you know, there's games I know which have great writing. Um, I'm thinking Prince FTL is a, is a lovely game, mm-hmm. which has lots of really great writing in it. And it all comes in these little pockets of scenarios. But I know myself that you know, playing the game a lot, I end up just looking for the gameplay relevant piece of text. I ignore all the flavor. And, and jump straight to what actually matters for the gameplay. You know, you can write so much that just gets ignored, or mm. people don't realize there's an important bit in there in sentence 23, but they miss it out because they stop reading after sentence two. And it, it's a typical issue with, certainly with genre writers, fantasy writers probably more so than science fiction, but you know, but you see it in science fiction too, in that you know there's this want to deliver a large amount of exposition. Um, and as you were saying about shuffling it to the side, that's that's one technique of, of thinking about it. Another way is, you know, really considering whether people need it. A lot of the time, particularly if you've got a visual medium to work with, an opportunity to show some of that backstory, some of that premise is really important. And you do, uh, you know, I recently looked at a piece of work where 
essentially it was a, a feature film and the first 12 pages were all backstory and you're sitting there going i don't need any of it you know just <laughs> introduce that character quickly that character quickly i don't need any of this you know i need none yeah. of these back areas i just need you know because and i guess it, in a way it's it's a way in which the writer is trying to project their security in what they're telling they feel that all this information was needed for them to be able to tell the story and so you know so it becomes something other things that i don't know if you've you've done these have you done um ever done 10 word stories <laughs> i have not done 10 words stories, uh, no. i i use those as i use those as a as a technique and and we had actually we had for for my students recently we had um, alan ashley in to to come and go through 10 word stories with them and they're a really good technique in making you do something with nothing, you know, because you've only got 10 words to tell a story. So, you know, so they can be really careful. And it does encourage you towards sort of twisting the end if they're on their own. But, um, you know, if you're in a medium where you've got these other things to, to you know, to deliver content for you as well, you've got to compliment. And another uh, suggestion, and certainly since we were talking about the Clark Awards at the the start, the 2016 shortlist had Arcadia by Ian Pierce, and I don't know if you've seen it, but Arcadia—it's a book that's native for the iPad, and so it's basically it's an app where you start reading the book, and then you are given the opportunity to follow different characters, and you can look at the book's narrative structure by zooming out. You can see where all the events tie in together and how these different things happen at different consecutive times and so you can follow a different person so there's about 10 characters you can elect to follow and so it means you read the book and then you can read it again and follow a different path and read the book again and follow a different path it doesn't quite do what we used to be used to with dying midway through and turn to page 24 and then roll your dice and fight the orc <laughs> and all the rest of that but yeah. it's it's actually more you know more mainstream in in that regard because it's you know it's sort of exploring a a narrative through lots of people's perspectives uh, and it uses what you were saying about shoveling the exposition to a side it does it has side panels that are almost like hitchhiker's guide style sections that you can touch on the side panel and find out a bit more about the place and then you move on in the story or you can not and just move on in the story so uh, really interesting yeah. to see how you know, those kind of dynamics can, can sort of blur and change. Yeah. So what other bits and pieces have you found through your experience of, of writing for games that are a particular, you know, particular highlights, particular things that you think are important? Well, I think what I often see in games is really, really awful dialogue. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you, you get these people who are very good at writing some epic backstory piece or something, you know, the, there's wonderful exposition about the fate of the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But as soon as you get two people talking in a conversation, it just doesn't sound real at all. It, it, it's horrific. Uh, even when it's just text on the screen, when you have voice actors in the game, it gets even worse. Uh, and a, a one tip, which I mean, this is a good tip for writers in general, but you know, read your work aloud. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's especially important. It's especially important for dialogue in a game when, when you've got yeah. actual people saying these things. And if you can get someone else to read your stuff, record it and listen yep. to the file and try not to cringe too much. Yeah. Even, you know, if you don't feel like doing that that much, I mean, a quite quick thing to do is shove it into like a speech synthesizer 
and you yeah. can play it on high speed and listen through and just it gets the cadence wrong and everything but yeah. it quickly shows really bad stuff um, uh, have you listened to or watched any of the star citizen cutscene stuff i have not no so a lot of that was written by chris roberts and oh no yeah <laughs> i i'm yeah. sure i mean some of it some of it is great you know some of it's good but some of the speech stuff I, I think it was gary oldman's character i was listening to some of the speech stuff and i knew what they were going for they were going for a particular effect you know they're going for a particular patriotic or you know projected patriotism speech and it just it's a complete clunker and you're sitting there going gary oldman's got to make this work if anybody's going to make it work gary oldman's going to make it work but he's got to make this work yeah. and you know and and right you know finding a way to you know and but then again chris roberts is in good company there because obviously harrison ford said the same about george lucas's dialogue you know so there's the, the, there are clunkers in wow. terms of <laughs> yeah I, i've seen the star wars movies and i think yeah wow in gaming i think it's really bad because you don't even have necessarily top tier writers even in the top games Skyrim mm. has horrific dialogue. It's really bad. There are good examples. Mass Effect games are, are mm. generally pretty good. But a lot of games do have this very clunky dialogue that doesn't sound like natural people talking at all. Sure. And it's sure. not even that. So you don't actually want literal natural people talking. There's this whole thing of you don't actually put in every um and ah uh that people actually talk about in conversation. But there's a way of mm. faking naturalism in dialogue. Sure. Another thing I, I see done very badly is just the tendency to make every character have the same personality, the same sarcastic right. personality, yeah, same person with attitude kind of thing. Yeah, they're still uh, they're, they're sort got of a snarky line for something. Yeah, they're riffing off of a 1990 stereotype, aren't they? In that regard, it's it is a sort of yeah. enigmatic hero. No, don't talk to me. I want to, you know, or or sort of rebuffing character. The yeah the I mean we we see that see that quite a lot um and and actually practically as a writer when someone kind of rebuffs a bit too much you're kind of thinking well no one to talk to them then <laughs> um, <laughs> it's difficult difficult for them to remain cool if they're you know if that's what they are the other thing that what was interesting was last year I was I was a guest at Octacon last year um, which is the the Irish National Convention for Science Fiction. And the guest of honour there was Rihanna Pratchett. And obviously Rihanna Pratchett's worked, uh, yeah. written in games for, for years. So I was sitting in the audience for her question and answer session. And she talked about the difference between the writer and the narrative designer. She said, actually in games, you need a narrative designer because the narrative designer sits there and has a bit more of a, an overview of where everything fits in. I guess almost like someone who's tracking all the scenes, but if there's interactivity and if there's options and choices, then by having a separate person tracking all of that, they've got an opportunity to, to sort of not, not get too too bogged down in the detail, if you see what I mean. And then, then the writer can just get on with the detail if they know the narrative designer is is sort of keeping an eye on the on the profusion of things in the way in which they go you know the balance of narratives for example you know whether this ending has got enough in it whether this ending's got enough in it and so on i don't know have you worked with anybody you know sort of collaborated with anybody working that way i've essentially had that role in a lot of the stuff i've done ah right uh, cool okay just because i have that design experience myself yeah so when working with jupiter hell which i'm working on i am a co-designer oh. on the game 
with gotcha. uh, Tales of Magial, whenever I was asked to do some writing, you know, sometimes I would invent whole quests and locations and, and gameplay elements that, to go along with it. Yeah. So it, it was more than just, my role was more than just write a piece of text for this. Sometimes it was just write a piece of text for this. You know, sure. the designer, the, the lead designer of the game had a, a clear idea of what he wanted. So it was fitting a piece into there and that easy enough. But more often than not, it was affecting things more broadly, inventing whole new bosses that would tie in with the, the lore that I was creating or new new items that would have a story around them. The story was about the item itself rather than about you know just the game. So being in the position of designer plus writer makes a much bigger difference than just being a writer. And I think a, a lot of the reasons we see problems with games writing is that the writing role is this separate thing, completely separate thing, which has no input onto the design. Just last week I was mixing Sidewinder Slammers at a CD space bar. I wasn't even pilot registered. And now I have a ship and a basic starting mission for the Federal Navy. Owing to recent actions in the Lave region, the Federal Navy now seeks to recruit another 1,000 entry-level pilots. We need you to add your strength to our military machine. I'm going to see the galaxy. We have missions for all pilots, regardless of combat experience or flight hours. Come and talk to us and we'll get you on the military ladder. Join the Federal Navy. Make a real pilot of yourself. Or die trying. Wait, what's that? Is that, is that a ship coming? Are they looking for me? What do they? Want to tour the frontier? Travel with Colmac Reeve and our new fleet of passenger starliners. We've opened up the universe for a range of budgets. Option one, luxury. My husband and I like to travel in comfort. The new luxury cabins were like a home away from home. After all, one's home is a castle. Option two, first class. We'd saved up a bit for a really special trip. First class cabins were like nothing we've travelled in before. Really luxurious. Option three, travel cabin. We would a trip with Cormac Reeves monthly lotto. A travel cabin for two on a starliner around the solar system. Once in a lifetime for us, simply amazing. Option four, basic accommodation. Me and my mates just wanted to hitch around the universe. It's so great that we have the option of getting a really cheap cabin to see the sights. Saved us loads. And for the budget conscious and slaves, we have our cheapest option yet. Well, I needed it. And we won't sell any of those frozen passengers into slavery, I promise. Colmac Reeves All Budget Tours seeing the galaxy from luxury to freezing tubes. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Is your life like this? Okay, so turning then to Jupiter Hell, which is your, your new project. This is what you've been up to of recent times. 
you've gone through your Kickstarter. You launched. You went through successfully. I backed your Kickstarter, and uh, it was very successful indeed. I, you're 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 more than welcome. Anything that says like XCOM and the like, and 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 I know is going to have a quality of writing to it, then I'm entirely happy to back it. Tell us what Jupiter Hell is about. So Jupiter Hell is a roguelike game. Roguelikes typically have this kind of top-down view where you're moving around an environment and interacting with, with other creatures therein. It is inspired from a previous game by the lead designer called Doom the Roguelike, which is a roguelike based on Doom. Jupiter Hell is essentially taking that idea, which was incredibly popular. Doom Morale was a hugely popular game. And turning that into an original IP uh, and making that into a, a brand new game that that can, uh, that hopefully can repopularize some of the traditional aspects of the roguelike genre. The roguelike genre is fairly broad, but the traditional aspect of that is is quite small. These very tactical games, which a bit like XCOM, mm-hmm. every turn you're having to make different moves, and it's all about thinking through your moves and planning ahead and and being smart with resources and, and hopefully having a, a fun game. So it's a sci-fi setting. It's set on the moons of Jupiter, and the general story is. There's sort of demonic forces appearing on the moons of Jupiter, and you're a, a marine that is suddenly fighting against uh, all these demonic beings. And that is fairly stock sci-fi, the story. I'm, I, we're completely unapologetic that it's very <laughs> sort of 90s sci-fi style mm-hmm. of burly marine shoots up lots of zombies and aliens sure. kind of thing. But there is a, a bit more depth to the story for those that want to go looking for it. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the politics behind how the, the whole the world is set up there, various corporations and so on, there's a bit of a, a cyberpunk aesthetic to a lot of it. And the creatures yourself that you're coming across, what are they exactly? And how did they come about? And, and the way in which you unlock further details about those will, for those who pay attention, be a bit more interesting. Hmm. Um, now it's designed in such a way that if you don't care about the story at all, you can mm. completely ignore it. The game will always make it clear who yeah. you're supposed to shoot at. Okay? <laughs> but if you go out of your way to, to hack into terminals or to defeat certain enemies that unlock certain extra content, or if you're just particularly, you know, you pay attention because there will be information just in how you interact with things and how the enemies behave. It will give clues to what is really going on here. For those that really dig into that, there will be layers of death. So... In terms of the narrative design, this idea of layering and this idea of providing different experiences, I've encountered players who want that. Is that your experience too? Yeah, definitely. Especially this type of game is the mm. sort of game where you replay it a lot. And sure. You go through the same game multiple times. And every time you play it, the game gets recreated anew. There's different different layouts, everything, different enemies, different items. It's designed as a replayable experience. So what you don't want is players having to go through the same content all the same yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so everything has to be kind of skippable for them. If they read the same text, you know, five or six times in a row, they're going to get really bored. This is a game you're supposed to play hundreds of times in a row. Sure, and uh, I guess as I guess as well, then that kind of affects how you write, doesn't it? It affects how you write content for it, because if you're writing story for a game like that, then either that story either you've got to find ways to make that story different every time or you've got to find ways to make that story a great experience once or twice 
but then something that sort of sits in the background whilst the player gets what they want out of the gaming experience uh, without feeling delayed by the story. Exactly. So what I did with Tales of Magia when I, I wrote for it and what I'm, I'm also doing with Jupiter Hell is that there will be some longer pieces in the game with, you mm-hmm. know, with, with chunkier detail there that you can unlock, that, that you can come across during the game. But once you come across it, you'll never come across it again because right. every time you restart the game, you'll have a menu with all the lore you've unlocked in previous games sitting there to be accessed. So you'll always be able to go back and find these pieces that you've already found before, even if it was 100 playthroughs ago. Sure. Uh, and you're never going to be presented with that same text again. Other regular pieces of text, bits that you have to engage with on a regular basis, will always be incredibly mm. short. Mm. Maybe not 10 words, but sometimes 10 <laughs> words. But similar sort of scale. Yeah, no, I, I always thought with... Um... Something like Slender, the eight pages. You've got to collect these scraps of paper. And on these scraps of paper, you have the opportunity to say something. And of course, after a while, people are collecting the same scraps of paper. They want to know they've got the scrap of paper. They don't necessarily need to know what's written on the piece of paper. But, you know, swapping them around in a design like that, you know, so you learn a piece that you'd never got before and so on and so forth. So depending on which, which snippet, you know you get and so on comes out first comes out second etc is an opportunity to sort of vary that but um yeah i mean you know this this sort of layered approach i think is probably is is how we're looking at a variety of different different things so i saw that um as i say jupiter hell has completed its kickstarter so you were through that in december and then it's transferred to the website so what's the current stage of development since the kickstarter we have been working on the engine for the game to get a release out to some of the the top tier backers we call the top tier the inner circle these are people that backed at quite a high level and i know that some very generous elite fans are, are in that mix and they get access to all of our earliest builds of the game uh, and they also get access to a forum where they see all the developer discussions so we, we don't keep discussions particularly private when we have developer dispute you know, on a design issue, it's all out in the open and anyone, any of the inner circle can, can contribute. So as of a month ago, we've got those builds going out to backers. We've had two builds so far uh, and we've been tweaking the game based on feedback we've been receiving from people. And the idea at the moment is actually to focus on the really, really basic things about the feel of the game. Mm. So some basic interface things, how the game flows, making sure it works on a decent number of platforms. We've got it on on Windows and Linux right now. Uh, And then we're going forward uh, looking at combat mechanics, which are Mm -hmm. the main interaction in the game. It's combat. Mm -hmm. So making sure the the absolute base, most common actions look and play really smoothly. uh, Because that's going to be what you're doing for a large portion of the game. Sure. Um, And then we're going to build up all the depth on top of that, where there's more complex interactions in the game or, or more developed pieces of content. So things like, and I guess, commandos, where you had, you know, the different types of commandos who had all their different specials. The one who could bury himself in the ground and the German soldiers would just walk by. Or um, with, as I say, with Akari Warriors way, way back, where you could get in the tank and drive the tank around. I'm not necessarily, I'm not sitting here and lobbying you for a wish list of features, but I'm guessing that those go into categories of more complex interactions. Yeah, so the different enemy types will yeah. be something we kind of add and build up over time. 
Um, initially, we'll be focusing on player abilities before then looking at how we can stack interesting challenges for the player. Mm. But we'll, there's going to be a mix. There's going to be a lot of gray areas and bleeding and so on between those stages of development. But certainly, we've got lots of stuff written in the background, you know, things, yeah. things we've discussed sure. about, you know, here's an interesting idea for an enemy. Here's some behaviors that would work well. Here's some environmental effects that would stack in interesting ways with other things happening in the game. Yeah, so... and. And obviously, I'm sure there are plenty of, uh, of different ideas in terms of enemies, in terms of, uh, of all the different uh, elements of, of that construction. I'm noting here on the website, I'm seeing a lot of empty canisters that somebody has, has disturbed, which is over in the news area. Um, so it suggests you've got stocking and supplies. At least, you know, you're perhaps looking at stocking and supplies. And the look is interesting, too. It, you know, it's nice to see that, um, you know, the classic space base is coming back and i love the fact that you've got i i guess those are dynamic blood stains on the on the floor yeah so there's dynamic blood stains dynamic animations as well there's a lot of interesting things the game does to kind of adapt to the speed of your play so if you move through the game incredibly fast all the animations will change to keep up with you so you can mm. play as fast as you like if you ever stop all the game stops it just waits for your input but we importantly don't want the animations in the game, the graphical effects in the game, slowing down your own playstyle. Mm. And what about uh, what about multiplayer? Are you looking into multiplayer? Absolutely not. It's a pure single player experience. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. The only reason I'm even thinking about that is I'm thinking about LaveCon and trying to see if we can kind of pull something out where uh, different people wander around and, and shoot each other. But uh, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can I can see that precisely that it lends itself to that, particularly because you're exploring through rooms. You know, I can I can see why you'd want to keep that keep that fairly restricted in terms of what's there. And it's supposed to be slightly claustrophobic, isn't it? So if you're not on your own, then, um, you know, you lose a little bit of that, don't you? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that really matters with multiplayer in this sort of genre of game is waiting for other people to take their move. Right. Uh, typically, in these games, you can you can go and take lots of moves very quickly. And then you come up across a really difficult enemy and you have to actually stop and think and think through all your different tactical options. If you've got every single move, you've got to wait for the other person to move. It completely ruins the flow of the game. Right. So it, it doesn't entirely work in this environment. It, it slows sure. things down so much. So, okay, so when are you looking at releasing Jupiter Hell? I don't want to make any promises. Um, <laughs> I did originally say by the end of the year that we would be in Steam Early Access. Great. And that we would probably stay there for a good while as we mm. get more and more community feedback and build up even further content on it. Hmm. because it's it's the sort of game that is always asking for more yeah you know, more to be added to it because it's a replayable game the more things you've got that people will discover anew on a different playthrough the better the game is so yeah hopefully public release by the end of the year people can buy into current releases if they want uh, there is a kind of a pre-order page and you know if you really want to get into the the inner circle and get immediate builds of the game you can you know i, I will want the immediate builds aren't particularly fantastic to play yeah they, yeah they, of develop over time yeah um and we've got pre-orders for for alpha and beta which will be much more playable experiences yeah. uh, available and i'm assuming i mean what you were saying about you know sort of content addition it seems to have and you'll forgive me perhaps for for a little bit of the comparison but um uh, shadow run had a fantastic method of adding on content in terms of its design is there any uh, any thought towards looking at the design methodology around uh, shadow run essentially what they did in the end didn't they they 
devised a, a system that was a massive massive story but you also had the opportunity to to write your own stories as a, almost like a games master um is there any thinking there so we are going to have the game fully moddable for right. people that want to make their own modifications and if mm-hmm. they want to design new areas new scripts new story pieces that will all be available as well as new gameplay elements mm-hmm. you know new weapons new new enemies etc so that will will all be there and you have seen a lot of games get a lot of uh, popular success through their modding community um, yeah. Skyrim for example it gives gives longevity uh, so, doesn't it so you know it, it seems to be that games that stick around are ones that have respected and and attempted to you know to provide content for a modding community exactly so we'll we'll definitely be looking to make that as easy as possible for modders sure. great okay are there any other bits and pieces that you think that uh, our listeners need to be aware of for looking at Jupiter Hell? I mean, uh, firstly, we should say to them, uh, if you want to go and have a look at the latest news on there, it is over at jupiterhell.com. So just find your way over there. And, and Darren's listed up uh, the latest news. You've also got um, some some news there from Cornell. I think that was a little while ago. But uh, but yeah, certainly there's information about uh, about what you're doing and where you're at in terms of uh, of everything else. Is there any other other bits and pieces that you think that um, that we ought to let people know before they they head on over? No, head on over, check it out. Great. Will you be looking to perhaps uh, bring one of the test builds to to LaveCon? Hopefully, depends on whether I can get it working on a laptop, which currently it won't it won't run on anything without a, a real GPU. But potentially by LaveCon we'll have that ready. I'll see. No, uh, I can't make any promises. <laughs> okay, so Darren's definitely bringing it to LaveCon, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Everybody. <laughs> I promise it now. Everybody heard it here um, first. I suppose one other little nice touch in the game is that we managed to get, as a voice actor for the game, a uh, chap called Mark Muir. Mark right. Muir, for those who don't know, played the voice of Commander Shepard in Mass Effect. Ah, fantastic. Uh, so having him on board, he was actually very keen to take part in the project. And if you look at some of our promotional videos and stuff, you can hear his voice. He, he has voiced the main character in the game. Which mostly means that we've got lots of recordings of him swearing and dying. <laughs> and and sort of grunty recordings, right? Yeah. So if you want to hear Commander Shepard scream in a cursing death scream, Jupiter Hell's <laughs> the game for you. Oh, Jupiter, which art now hell, hallowed be thy pain. Thy victims come. Thy evils done unto them in lamentation. Give unto us our daily debts, as we deliver death unto others. Smother us now in blood and grief and torment, and deliver evil into our sights. A fucking man. So if you're a modder, then, you know, obviously you, you want to buy this game and then look to mod Mass Effect with it, right? Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Turn your version of Mass Effect into something very sweary and, uh, and you know, and, and grunty. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, so that's Jupiter Hell, and that's uh, Darren's new project. Uh, he's going to be talking about it and hopefully bringing a version of it to LaveCon. Uh, on the weekend of the 23rd to the 25th of June. Darren, thank you. That's fantastic. Certainly looks interesting, and uh, hopefully more people will check it out. That's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email us at info at laveradio.com. 
Facebook slash Lave Radio or at Lave Radio on Twitter. If you're interested in LaveCon, which is our annual science fiction event that features Elite Dangerous and also the extra work that people involved in Elite Dangerous are getting up to now, then you can go and find that over at hwsevents.co.uk slash LaveCon and all the information for booking will be there. We're at the Sedgebrook Hall Hotel this year, uh, as we were the last two years, and uh, it's it's a Friday through to Sunday event. You'll even see Darren, won't you, Darren? Oh, absolutely. I'm incredibly looking forward to LaveCon. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, uh, so join us again. Until next time, Commanders, continue to ingest those adventures. You take care, carry on reading. Goodbye. Goodbye.